Matthew 20. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire workers for his vineyard. He agreed to pay them a denarius for the day and sent them into his vineyard. About nine in the morning, he went out and saw others standing in the marketplace doing nothing. He told them, you also could go and work in my vineyard, and I will pay you whatever is right. So they went. He went out again about noon and about three in the afternoon and did the same thing. About five in the afternoon, he went out and found still others standing around. He asked them, why have you been standing here all day long doing nothing? Because no one has hired us, they answered. He said to them, you also go and work in my vineyard. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the workers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last ones hired and going on to the first. The workers who were hired about five in the afternoon came and each received a denarius. So when those came who were hired first, they, they expected to receive more. But each one of them also received a denarius. When they received it, they began to grumble against the landowner. These who were hired last worked only one hour, they said, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the work and the heat of the day. But he answered, one of them, I am not being unfair to you, friend. Didn't you agree to work for Daenerys? Take your pay and go. I want to give the one who was hired last the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Or are you envious because I'm generous? So the last will be first, and the first will be last. Now the second reading is taken from Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3 to 6, and that can be found on 1,664. 1,664. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. To the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. Thanks, Lee Ching. Let's pray. Um, Heavenly Father, thank you for uh, your word um, this morning as we try and uh, wrestle with some tricky parts in it. We pray that you would remind us once again of how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ for us. And we pray it for his sake. Amen. Can I ask you please to take out the handout that you were given as you came in? Uh, you'll see on the inside a pretty detailed outline today, including some blanks for you to fill in. There should be pens in the seats in front of you, which you'll need at some point. If you look at the front cover, uh, it's just a reminder that in this series that on Ephesians that we've been making our way through this term, we're actually taking a slight pause this week. Uh, to look at this question of predestination. So if you open up to the inside, um, you'll see what we're going to cover. I want to say that this topic of predestination, the idea that God chooses some people to be saved uh, even before the creation of the world, 
I want to say I realise it is very confronting, but it's critical for us to address it. Uh, if you're here today as someone who's not a believer, then once again, we're delighted that you've joined us this morning. Uh, we're going to be trying to get our heads around a big and a controversial topic. I hope you see, if nothing else, that here in this church that um, you know, we don't avoid the bits of the Bible that are hard. At the same time, if you're here as someone who is a Christian, um, then I want to acknowledge this topic is confronting, but I want to say it is deeply comforting. Uh, and hopefully, that's what you'll take away from this morning. Now, obviously, I'm not going to cover everything in this talk, um, so this is in many ways the start of a conversation. Uh, I'm letting you know now that I'll, I've actually kept the talk shorter so that we have a chance for Q&A at the end. Um, so I'll give the talk, we'll sing, and then there'll be a chance just for some questions from the floor, just for something a bit different this morning. If you look at the handout, you'll see there's three points I want to cover. Firstly, the doctrines of election and predestination. Secondly, two main objections which question God's character. And then thirdly, on the right-hand side, some pastoral responses. Let's start at point one, the doctrines of election and predestination. In the Bible, the doctrine of election is the view that God chooses us to be saved. God chooses us to be saved, not vice versa. That's the doctrine of election. The strongest form of the doctrine of election is what's called predestination. That is, that God chooses us to be saved not just before we were born, but even before he created the world. He predestined us. Uh, you see this um, several times in the New Testament. Actually, six times it refers to predestination, twice of which come in Ephesians chapter 1. And in fact, the verses that Li Ching read for us contain one of those references. Pick it up with me at verse 4 of Ephesians 1 on your handout. For God chose us in Christ before the creation of the world to be blameless in his sight, holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ. Verse 4 speaks about God choosing us or election. Verse 5 speaks about predestination, that is, that he did so before the creation of the world. And as I said, there are six occurrences in total, all of which are listed there. If you want to check them out, another one is in Ephesians 1 verse 11. Well, as I said at the start, uh, this is both confronting and comforting. This is both confronting and comforting. Confronting? Well, that's obvious. Uh, if God chose me even before the creation of the world, it's saying that my standing before him, clearly, it has nothing to do with my efforts. And that's comforting because it's an affront to my pride. It says that I cannot contribute anything to my salvation. That's confronting. And yet at exactly the same time, it is the most wonderful relief. To know that God is the one who chooses me, uh, it is the greatest comfort we can hear because I know how fickle and fallible I am. I know, how, I know how often and how easily I stumble and fall, so thank God, I never need rely on myself. In fact, I cannot. No wonder that Ephesians chapter 1 began with those great words in verse 3, praise be to God. Praise be to God for what he has done for us. Now before we try and unpick some of the very big philosophical and pastoral questions that flow from the doctrine of predestination... Let me try and address what I think is the biggest one from the very outset. Here it is, and it's there on your handout. Why would God choose us before the creation of the world? 
Why would he choose us before the creation of the world? Well, the answer, and here's the blank for you to fill in, it's because he loves us. Because he loves us. Look at Ephesians 1 verse 4 again. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ. According to the Bible, the reason that God chose us is not because we were deserving in any way. and The world hadn't even been made when he chose us. The reason God chose us is simply because of his great love for us. I want to say there are very many big questions about predestination that I suspect we'll never fully answer. For example, why would God create some people if he knew he wouldn't choose them? Uh, Or the question that uh, I'll never forget the night on which uh, one of my kids, uh, who was eight years old at the time, after bedtime stories, turned to me and with very wide eyes said, Daddy, why would God make a talking snake if he knew it would lead Adam and Eve astray? Typical pastor's kid, hey? Here's my question. Why would God make a world knowing that the only way to redeem it would be through the death of his own son? There are very many questions about predestination that I suspect we'll never fully be able to answer, but one question we do know the answer to is this. Why did God choose us? Because he loves us. And that's one conviction we hold with absolute certainty throughout this whole topic. Well, that's the doctrine of election and predestination. Point two, let's think about two main objections which flow from this doctrine, both of which question God's character. I've been trying to say throughout this series on Ephesians uh, that actually the key thing about Ephesians is that it tells us what God is like. Uh, The first half of the book, what we've covered so far, he's a God who is rich in mercy. And in the second half of the book, when we pick it up again, it's a God, this is a God who prepares good works in advance for us to do. They are both wonderful statements about the character of God. And yet, clearly, at least for many of us, predestination raises serious questions about God's character. Let me try and talk briefly about two of them. Firstly, and they're both printed there on your handout. Firstly, predestination is not fair. It's not fair. Isn't God unjust? Isn't God unjust for choosing some, but not others? I mean, to most of us, that feels unfair. Well, the big question here is, what does it mean for God to treat us fairly? What does it mean for God to treat us fairly? We've actually seen the beginning of an answer to that back in chapter 2 of Ephesians. I printed there on your handout. We saw this a few weeks ago. Ephesians chapter 2. Listen to the way in which Paul describes what all of us are like. Verse 1. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. What does it mean for God to treat us fairly? Well, Paul is saying that if we were dead in our transgressions and sins, verse 1, 
if we are deserving of his wrath, verse 3, then, here's the blank for you to fill in, if God treated us fairly as we deserved, no one would be saved. If God treated us fairly as we deserved, then no one would be saved. Of course, the flip side is true. That means the fact that anyone at all is saved is a testimony to God's incredible mercy and grace. I'll give you an illustration to make the point. Imagine that there are two convicted criminals, both scheduled for execution. Imagine that it is right and just for them to face the consequences of their actions, for them to get what they deserve. If at the last minute the monarch chooses to show clemency, to give a pardon to one of them, well, you wouldn't accuse him of being unfair. You'd just say that he's merciful. That's the parable, I think, that Jesus is telling in Matthew 20, the first reading that Li Ching brought to us. It's all about God's fairness. You remember how the story went? It's very topical, given the upcoming job summit this week. It's about employers and employees and what's a fair day's wage. Uh, In this story, an employer has hired several workers and he agrees to pay all of them the same amount, actually the appropriate wage for a day's work. The thing is that when some of them get paid, even though they haven't worked for the whole day, what does that mean? It doesn't make the employer unfair... It just means that he is unexpectedly generous. And so by telling the parable, in many ways what Jesus is doing is testing us. He's asking us, pretty bluntly, with which worker do you most resonate? Because how we respond, it's a diagnostic of our own hearts. And here's the problem, isn't it? Most of us, of course, resonate with those who look as if they've been shortchanged, when they haven't. They got paid exactly what they contracted for, Instead, we're meant to see it from the perspective of those who reaped a windfall gain unexpectedly. Our reaction to Jesus' words, it shows, I think, how much we are at risk of a distorted view of what God is like, of how easy it is for us to fail to see his amazing and his unexpected generosity. Well, That's the first objection which predestination raises. Isn't God unjust? Let's look at the second one near the bottom of the page. Predestination means I can't be held responsible. Hasn't God denied me my choices? Uh, This objection runs along these lines. If God chooses us, not just before we were born, but before he created the world, well, doesn't that mean really that our choices are illusory? Doesn't that mean we're just like puppets on a string dancing to the puppet master's tune or actors in a play who just have to read out predetermined lines? Uh, This, of course, is a serious charge. It has huge implications. I mean, if it's true, why would you bother with evangelism, with trying to declare the good news of Jesus if God is the one who saves? Why would you bother with trying to be godly? If God has saved you, it doesn't really matter. How do we respond? Uh, Well, every time uh, someone asks me this question, what I encourage them to do is to pick up this particular book here. 
uh, which is today's recommended reading. It's referred to there on your handout. It's by Don Carson called How Long, O Lord? Reflections on Suffering and Evil. How Long, O Lord? Reflections on Suffering and Evil. Uh, Have a look at the quote that comes from the key chapter there, which I think goes to the very heart of this question. Let me read it out. The Bible teaches that both of the following propositions are true. Firstly, God is absolutely sovereign, but his sovereignty never functions in such a way that human responsibility is curtailed, minimised or mitigated. And secondly, human beings are morally responsible creatures. We significantly choose, rebel, obey, believe, defy, make decisions and so forth, and we're rightly held accountable for such actions. But this characteristic never functions so as to make God absolutely contingent. The view that both of these propositions are true, I call compatibilism. What what Carson is saying is that the Bible says God is completely sovereign over his world and at the same time we are completely responsible for our decisions. Now notice actually, and this is helpful, he doesn't try to explain how those two convictions can be simultaneously true, both divine sovereignty and human responsibility. Actually, he'll concede that the Bible never fully explains how both can be true, simply that it insists both are. Let me give you a couple of examples. One from the Old Testament, one from the New Testament. This is on the next page, on the right-hand side of your handout. The Old Testament example, uh, this draws from the episode where God's people Israel are in slavery in Egypt and Moses speaks to the Pharaoh, uh, telling Pharaoh to let Israel go free And time and time again, Pharaoh appears to say yes, but changes his mind. As a result, the ten plagues come on Egypt as punishment. What's really helpful to notice about the incident of the ten plagues is that sometimes the Bible says that Pharaoh's heart was hard. Sometimes the Bible says that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. And sometimes the Bible says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And the passage that I printed actually contains all three of those descriptions. Look at it with me, Exodus chapter 9, verse 34. When Pharaoh saw that the rain and hail and thunder had stopped, he sinned again. He and his officials hardened their hearts. So Pharaoh's heart was hard, and he would not let the Israelites go, just as the Lord had said through Moses. And then the Lord said to Moses, Go to Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the hearts of his officials so that I may perform these miraculous signs of mine among them. Scripture insists both that God is sovereign and that you and I, we make real choices, real decisions, for which we ought be held to account. The New Testament example, well, what I've picked today is something that we have just done, the Lord's Prayer. So just a few minutes ago, when we prayed the Lord's Prayer, we confessed both God's sovereignty... Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. While simultaneously taking responsibility for our actions, for owning the consequences of our decisions. Father, lead us not into temptation. Forgive us our sins because they are real and we know that we are culpable. Now what's really remarkable about divine sovereignty and human responsibility 
is that even though both are simultaneously true, still God shows compassion even when we don't deserve it. You see, our choices, our decisions, they have left us, remember Ephesians 2, dead in our sins. They've left us deserving of God's wrath. But, despite all that, nevertheless, here's the blank for you to fill in. God always leans towards mercy, not rewarding merit. God always leans toward mercy, not rewarding merit. Because if he treated us according to merit, according to what we deserved, no one would be saved. Uh, we saw that actually back in Ephesians 2. Uh, verse 8, printed there on your hand, it is by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. Uh, we reflected on this a couple of weeks ago. Even faith is a gift from God. And yet what matters, as we talked about, remember that water pipe illustration? If our faith is like the pipe, what matters is what flows through it, is the grace of God alone which saves. That's a testimony to his mercy and compassion. Okay, we've tried to talk about what the doctrine of election and predestination is. I've tried to reflect on a couple of the main objections which question God's character. Let me try and conclude them, uh, point three, with some pastoral responses. And I just want to draw on two. Two things that flow from the doctrine of predestination. Uh, firstly, make disciples of all nations. Matthew 28, 19. What's really interesting is that Jesus never says to his disciples... Because God is sovereign, just kick back and wait for him to save the ones that he's chosen. Jesus never says that. In fact, Jesus says the exact opposite. Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him, so make disciples of all nations. And what he's doing is reminding us that our conviction that God's kingdom will come and that his will will be done on earth as it is in heaven that ought never turn us into Christians who won't share the gospel with others, either out of fear or apathy or just because it's inconvenient. I've expressed that somewhat negatively, put much more positively, what Jesus is saying in Matthew 28, 19, is that disciple-making is the highest honour and the noblest calling than you could possibly imagine. Jesus is saying that as disciples, we belong to the greatest global enterprise the world has ever seen. It's a movement that is destined to succeed, even from before the creation of the world. What an extraordinary privilege we have as believers. No wonder, as we heard, again back in Ephesians 2, there on your handout, we are God's handiwork. We are created to do the good works that he has prepared in advance for us to do. So, make disciples of all nations. The second and final response, I just want to say something about comfort and assurance, given the doctrine of predestination. Uh, see how one theological statement that we hold to puts it. Uh, it's actually the basis of the Anglican Church. Have a look there. I printed there on your, hat, on your outline. This is from the 39 Articles, Article 17. Predestination and our election in Christ is full of sweet 
pleasant and unspeakable comfort to godly persons. Isn't that a lovely phrase? Predestination is full of sweet, pleasant and unspeakable comfort to godly persons. Which probably is not what you thought when we said today we're going to talk about predestination. And yet, throughout this talk, I've kept repeating that I get predestination is confronting, it's also meant to be wonderfully comforting. And so it's right for me to finish, actually, with Jesus' words in John chapter 10. Printed there at the bottom of your handout. John chapter 10, verse 27. Jesus says, My sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. Jesus is reminding us that when we stumble into sin, when we are plagued by doubts, assurance lies not in what we must do now. Assurance lies only in what God has done for us. And what he promises he'll bring to completion in Christ. Jesus is saying that Christian assurance is never found in us or in our resolve, our plans or our intentions. Christian assurance is found solely in the fact that God chose us before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. What that means practically is that When we stumble into sin, when we are plagued by doubts, when we need comfort and reassurance, we don't look inward at ourselves. We don't look at the list of all the questions that we have. Rather, we look upwards to Christ, to the one who with his Father is greater than all and who promises that no one can ever snatch us away. After all, he gave his life to bring us home again. I want to say that uh, I've been a Christian now for 30 years or so. Uh, That's longer than some, not as long as others. I want to say that I still feel the challenges of predestination, even this week as I was preparing this talk. But what I do want to say is that my experience has been that I am, if I can put it this way, less bothered by predestination than when I first came to faith. Uh, That's not meant to sound like a cop-out. It's not meant to sound condescending to younger believers, as if I'm saying, I'll just wait until you've lived the Christian life a bit longer. It's neither of those things. It's just an admission that, to be honest the Bible is probably never going to fully answer all of my philosophical questions because that's not what the Bible was written in the first place. The Bible was written to highlight God's character, to remind us of his incredible compassion and mercy, which is new every morning, which I see every single day in Christ. So, when I'm asked, how can we be 100% certain that God has chosen us from before the creation of the world? 
Uh, I keep coming back to the response that I heard years ago to that question. It's stuck with me ever since. I printed there at the bottom of your handout. I'm not going to finish with this. If you're not sure you've been predestined, get yourself predestined today. Because it's the reason why Christ laid down his life for us. Because he loves you. Let me pray, then we'll sing, then we'll take some questions. Uh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for choosing us in Christ before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. Thank you that in love you have predestined us. So we pray each day, help us know more and more of how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ for us. And we pray it for his sake. Amen.